So a few months ago, I was out. Uh, it was an afternoon here in Los Angeles. I don't know if it was a weekend. It was like a Sunday or something. And uh, Gina and I were out sort of walking around. And uh, there was this new comic shop that had set itself up. And uh, I forget where we were. I feel like we were in Silver Lake or something. And uh, Silver Lake is notorious for having like these tiny little comic, like niche little comic book stores, which are cute, right? Oftentimes they piss me off because I want to go in there and dig deep and find some old issues. Um, and these guys don't carry that. They just get whatever they find interesting. And they have a couple of tables and they they cutely place these comic books on little stands. And, you know, you sort of passively go into these spots. And, you know, most of the stuff that they're going to have on the table is appealing to whatever audience is from that area. And I don't want to be derogatory towards Silver Lake, but you can assume the kind of books that they would have there. So we walked into this place and... Um, there was this one hardcover that just stuck out, that like really stood out to me. And I saw it from across the room, and it had this amazingly drawn woman. So this really sort of tough, feminine, she felt like a hero from like exploitation films from the 70s. She's standing there with her back to us, and the, immediately... What struck me first was the artist's understanding of lenses, the artist's understanding of camera positioning. This sketch uh, harkened back to the spaghetti westerns of my youth, harkened back to Once Upon a Time in the West, so harkens back to uh, Tarantino, all of that stuff immediately just on this simple sketch, right? And that's what I see first is form. Always is what I see first. And then I get closer to it and then I start to see the details. And I'm like, who is this? Is this is this like uh Campbell? Is this Scott Campbell? The guy who did um, you know, the Danger Girl series for you comic book nerds out there. Is this a Scott Campbell thing? And I look even closer and I go, No, 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 the details are different. And ah, uh, the way her glove is drawn, and there's a there's immaculate details. This artist is familiar to me. Who is this artist? And so, what happens when you go buy comic books is uh, the artwork on the cover catches you, right? They spend a lot of money on covers for that reason. That's how you pick a book off the shelf is the cover. But more often than not, especially these days on comic books. You open up the book, and it's a completely different artist. And because of what artists get paid, I think I've talked about this on prior episodes of the show, I think on the Ben Templesmith episode specifically, but artists get paid per page. And so it's about how many pages you can do in a day and whether or not you get to make rent, right? And so if you're super detailed on stuff, and there are some artists that I don't understand how they do it, you look at like the Jim Lees out there, you look at like um, the Jeff Dans, like you look at all these dudes that have this ridiculous detail and they do page per page per page. It's like, how's this guy getting paid, right? And most artists don't make a lot of money per page. I mean, years ago, I'd say like five or six years ago, it was like $150, $200 per page. And you think about how long, it, how many panels are on a page and how long it takes you to do it. It's pretty crazy when you think about that. So 
The fear for me when I'm in a comic book store is that a cover will entice me. And when I see a great illustration on a cover, it's setting the tone, it's setting the vibe for this world, right? And I'm excited about this world. And then I open up the book and it's trash art. And you're like, fuck. And so as I walked across this comic book store that was in my head, I'm like, okay, please let this be. Imagine what this book would be like if the artwork inside matched what the cover was. Imagine what this would be like. So I get closer to it and I grab it. And there's something about grabbing a hard cover, right? First thought in my mind is, is oh, this fucker's going to be expensive. <laughs> That's the first thought, right? And I pick it up and it's printed in a certain way and it's glossy and the illustration is glossed. So it's got a different texture over her than it does on the actual book itself. And then I flip it over. And on the back side, it's literally the reversal. So it's the front angle of this woman drawn in the same posture. And now there's some interesting stuff going on. What are these like chaps that she's wearing? And she's got like this skeleton t-shirt underneath this motorcycle jacket. She's handcuffed with what looks like a pistol from World War II. Is that a German pistol? Oh, okay. Now I'm sweating, right? Because I'm excited. This artist has done two, these different covers. And, and I'm like, is this a, has this guy done Mondo artwork before? So I open it up. First two pages. It's all the art. And now I flip through it quickly. And this is what I do with comics. When I get them, as I flip through it quickly, and it's like seeing a trailer for a film. And I'm like, what is this frame? There's a shot of her on this motorcycle from behind. That's epic. Ah, oh, and so now I've fallen into this book, right? I look at it. I love it. It was, uh, what was it, like 40 bucks? And I'm like, uh, maybe I can find this cheaper online. So I left it there, right? I left it in the shop. And I came home and I looked online. I couldn't find it anywhere. <laughs> I was super depressed. I'm like, no, no. And I never made it back to the comic book shop. Well, Christmas this year... I opened up one of my gifts from Gina, and she went back and found the book. And I was so excited. This is my favorite gift of the year. I read it immediately, and then instantly, instantly found the artist for this book. And uh, I actually talked to the writer of this book as well, and I invited them on the show. And that's today's episode. So, welcome to the brand new, brand new year, brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I am your host, Mike Petchy. Hello. Welcome to the show. I guess this is the start of a new season. I, I, I guess I've never really st- in the beginning when we did this show, I'm like, oh, season one, season two. So, what season is this? Five, right? Uh, whatever, man. It's two, it's 2023, brand new episode of In Love with the Process, and I'm excited to have today's guest on because we're going to talk art, we're going to talk comic book art, we're going to get real fucking nerdy about 1970s trash cinema, grindhouse cinema. We're going to talk in detail about uh, visual storytelling, about conveying emotion in a frame, conveying motion in a frame, uh, about telling stories without dialogue. All of that is crammed into today's episode um, with my guest, Robert Samalin, who is the artist of Kali, the comic book that I was talking about, that is K-L, I'm sorry, that is K-A-L-I, Kali, 
great fucking book. If you can find it, if you can find it, get it hardcover. You're going to love this book. I'm fucking telling you, you're going to love this book. Um, but Robert is also an art director. He's been an art director for some major video games over the years. He's an illustrator. He's a comics creator. He's done uh, multiple other comic books, Zero. Um, now, here's the other crazy thing is I've seen his work elsewhere, and I didn't put the uh, pieces together until I did the prep for today's show, and then my mouth dropped. Uh, he drew all the Waxworks Godzilla vinyl package stuff. So all that super cool Godzilla vinyl illustration work, he did. Of course he's tickling my, my funny bone with that shit, man. That's what I grew up with, and he did such a great job illustrating the, uh, the old 60s Godzilla. I love it, man. He also did like this really rad Mondo poster for Shin Godzilla. He's done a bunch of really great Mondo posters. Um, you got to definitely check him out right now. Um, I'll put his his website in the description of today's episode. He's also going to send me some art that I'll put on today's episode page at inlovewiththeprocess.com. So that way you can look at this art. We're going to reference different pieces of art. So you probably want to go to inlovewiththeprocess.com and click on the episode while you're listening to the show. I, the, I highly advise that because uh, it's all about details, man. And as you guys hear us talk about influences, you hear us talk about the things that really excite us, you'll be able to see those details in his illustrations. And if anything, if you are a comic book fan and you're listening to today's show, then you know, you already know this stuff, but many of you aren't. And maybe some of you are just passive comic book fans. Hopefully today's show helps you really see things differently when you're looking at illustrations, helps you fall down into sort of the love affair that I have, that Robert has, that so many filmmakers have with graphic novels and with the art involved with creating action in a panel. It's fucking cool shit, man. So strap yourselves in. Before we get into the show today, let us I'll just give you guys a little catch up. Um, we are uh, pushing into the new year. I've got a bunch of new sponsors coming on board this year. We're going to be doing some new contests this year. So be sure to follow me at Mike Petchy on Instagram. Um, I am, yes, still giving out passwords for 12KM. So if you guys haven't seen that movie yet, I am still making my way through some DMs. I'm starting to get deeper into the DMQ now. So I think I sent out messages last night to people that wrote to me three weeks ago. Um, so yeah, I'm still getting through them. Um, and most people get a link from me. The only people that aren't getting links from me are people that are being fucking assholes. All right. <laughs> Let me be real about it. Don't be an asshole. And I know that I've been posting a lot of, uh, negative comments and negative reviews. I'll be hundred percent transparent with you. I post those negative reviews because they do really well on Instagram. All right. So those things keep me high on your algorithm so that you see all the posts and all the reviews. Um, and I also find them fun. They're fun. I think they're cool. But I think some people are cracking the code. And they're just sending me negative reviews specifically to get my attention now. I know. I know the difference. I know the difference between a real passionate hate review and someone that's just trying to get my attention. I will call you out on it. I will totally do that. Um, we had a great New Year. Big epic party here at the house, which was fun. Gina's in the background. Did you have fun on New Year's? She nods yes. 
We had a good. <laughs> she nods yes while wearing her 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 uh, her robe. You haven't even showered today yet. No. Um, so yeah, we had a fun time with that. And um, did you guys notice? I was saying this to Gina uh, yesterday. So New Year's Day fell on Sunday. So one would assume that Monday. The Monday after that is the first day that everybody goes back to work. And so I woke up, it's a brand new year, ready to start shit, got my to-do list. I'm like full fucking throttle. And I have to be overly zealous about it because I have to push my way out of the sort of multi-week lethargic fucking mode that I've been in with booze and food and everything else, right? So I have to make an effort to drag my ass out of the fucking coffin, right? And get to work. And so I started that and I started to write to folks and no one was answering. And I was getting these response emails. I'm like, where the fuck is everybody? So I went for my bike ride, right? You guys know I ride out here in Los Angeles and I go to a, it's not really a heavily populated area. Most days there's like a few people on the track. I go there on Monday and it was fucking loaded, right? Loaded with people, couples out walking aggressively, forward brows very much in their own world stepping out in front of my bike most of the time uh yeah and so then i'm like what the fuck is this and so then i drive to a whole foods or whatever right i had to get some dinner that night and this is you know a monday at like 11 or whatever in the morning the place is fucking packed lines all the way through the spot i'm standing in line and i'm like what the fuck is happening do we stop going to work? Do people no longer work? And I came home and I said to Gina, I'm like, what's going on? Well, apparently everybody stays out of work until what? July 3rd, July 4th this year. It's crazy. And in my head, I'm like, it's got to have something to do with the travel, right? Because many of you traveled and uh, I've heard the horror stories of the strikes, the airline strikes and uh, all the shit that people went through. People were like, it was like fucking Home Alone, John Candy, fucking uh, polka band shit, where people were renting U-Hauls and driving themselves home from across country. It's crazy, man. I had to have something to do with that, right? Or maybe it's just the, you know, sticky residue that's left over from COVID. And people are like, fuck this. I don't want to work that hard, right? Feel that, right? I feel like that's still sort of a main a narrative with folks. I mean, it has to have affected everybody. You know, you spend, what, two years thinking about your life and whether or not it, you need to work as hard as you did before. Maybe. Or maybe, Michael, it's just because you were irritated that you had to go back to work that day and no one else did. Maybe that's what it was. You know? Whatever. It was fun. Uh, fun holidays. Uh, very excited to get to work. Um, in the process of cutting... Uh, my new film that I just shot, and then I'm in the process of cutting some new pieces for Gina. We have tons of footage that I have to edit. I've got my Puget System smoking right now as I cut through all this stuff. So you, there'll be plenty of content coming your way um, on my Instagram page. All right. Um, also, I saw the new Avatar. Did you guys see it? Avatar 2, The Way of the Water, right? I loved it. I fucking loved it. If you haven't seen it yet, don't wait for it to be on a streamer. 
don't do it. Go see it in a theater. Go see it in a theater. It's going to be a completely different experience. I don't know if you guys saw the clip I posted with James Cameron. I agree with him where he talks about the big difference between going to a movie theater and seeing stuff at home is that you have no control over pausing it or stopping it. Sounds familiar. I've said that before. You have no control. So you go and you give up control. You allow a filmmaker to take you on a ride. That's the difference. That is the main difference. Sure, the sound is amazing. Go see it in an IMAX. I saw it 3D. I saw all the trimmings and all like the, the experiential stuff that I would never get at the house. I mean, Jeannie yells at me when I try to run the system here loud enough to match a movie theater. Are you deaf? That's what she says to me all the time. I'll get a hearing test. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> yeah. Go see it. It's fun. It's a great movie. Um, I hope you guys like it. If you saw it, if you did, let me know. Tell me. Write to me on Instagram. Be like, we loved it. We hated it. We saw this movie. We loved it. We hated it. Let me know. I want to talk with you guys. Anyway, that's it. Let's get into the show. I don't want to delay it anymore. Robert and I get deep into it. So strap yourselves in, grab a comfy seat. Um, and uh, both, I, I will say this. We talked after we did the interview and the both of us were taking notes on what we were saying to each other. So there's a lot of learning here. All right. So get ready for an epic new episode of In Love With The Process. How are you, buddy? I am good. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. We were just talking offline that we're on opposite ends of the planet right now. So I have a <laughs> sexy morning voice and it sounds like you have been settled in all day. <laughs> well, I, I do have um, uh, sort of recovering from a cold I had over uh, the entire Christmas and New Year. So oh. this is hopefully a slightly sexy voice. In my <laughs> It's got me smiling. <laughs> um, I'm excited to have you on the show, man. I'm very excited to have you on the show. And um, what's fascinating about uh, what I know of your work is that I've seen it in so many different places, and it's really um, excited me in all these different spots, but I never put the pieces together. And uh, a few months ago, I was in a comic book store because I've I consider myself still, even in my old age, like a comic book nerd, and I try to hit it as much as I can. Um, and I saw this hardcover book um, that had this woman on the cover that was just, the posing was phenomenal. And being a, you know, a shooter myself and a, and a, a director myself, I'm like, this guy has an idea of lenses and lens choices. And the thing that always scares me about comic books is that the covers, they're often hiring high-end artists just for the cover. And so I always pick up books and flip through it because I'm very much an art guy. 
And I'm like, okay, so the inside of this book's going to be trash. <laughs> and so I picked it up and I flipped through and it was consistent. And I was like, oh, fuck, like all every panel of this page is a piece. Every panel of this page is beautiful artwork or this book is beautiful artwork. I was like, who is this guy? And then I fell down the rabbit hole and I'm like, oh my God, you did all the Godzilla covers for the vinyl stuff. And I was like, all right, I got to get this guy in the show. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, cheers. Yeah. So the book for the audience, the book that I'm talking about is Kali and it is phenomenal. Um, I think it's such a, it's like this, it's sort of like a Mad Max meets like, uh, like almost like an inglorious bastards. And it's, so cinematically done. I mean, it, it literally looks like storyboards that I would use to make a movie. So uh, it's beautiful, dude. Well, thank you. And um, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's, it's an honor being part of the, uh, of this, uh, this podcast. Thanks, man. So <clears throat> let's get started um, from the beginning here. Out of all of the art forms, out of all the mediums, like why'd you pick up a pencil? Like why is it drawing for you? Well, I I think that started, uh, you know, every kid ever throughout <laughs> the history of, of time has uh, has started drawing and having fun with it. And I think, you know, everyone is born an artist and then they just, you know, let it go or get other interests. I just stuck with it. It's, I think I've been drawing and making up stories and these um, kind of things ever since well, as far back as I can remember, I'm I'm being told like stories from my my parents what I would do uh, as a tiny tiny kid. Mm-hmm. Whenever we'd go anywhere, I would just you know carry a pad, crayons, <laughs> watercolors. <laughs> it's 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 just I I can't stop drawing. I um I used to draw like most kids, um, nurturing a dream of uh, you know working in comics and. Mm-hmm making art for a living. And I, I, I tried doing that. Um, I don't have any formal training. I didn't get accepted into art school or anything. So I, I just learned by myself, what mm-hmm. do you call that? Autodidact. Um, I just learned by doing, and I just kept on it cause it was so much fun. And, and now I'm, I'm 44. <laughs> I'm still having too much fun doing it. I literally <laughs> can't stop doing it. I do it all day at work. I'm an art director in the video games, mm-hmm. but it's a really different kind of medium. But as soon as I get home, I break out pen and paper and draw. Nice. Nice. Nice, man. Yeah. So you and I are about the same. You, we're actually the same age, which is crazy. I was going to ask you that. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. Just because <clears throat> I think that in film, when you're a filmmaker, age is a is a benefit. You know, you've got life experience, you've got time experience, you've sort of experienced love and loss, and then you've just got, you know, the old saying, over 10,000 hours of practice into your yeah. craft. Um, and your work is, not only is it just like, not only do you have like the anatomy on point, not only is it technically well drawn, but there is this, in each frame, there is what I like to call the line of energy or just the emotion in the posturing and the posing that you've got nailed down, which I feel like comes from life experiences. Do you agree with that? Do you think you you needed the time, you needed the 44 years to get as good as you are right now? Definitely. I mean, <clears throat> I'm... 
I'm a movie buff. I am crazy about film. Mm-hmm. I watch <laughs> films all the time, <laughs> and and it's something that inspires me a lot. Um, but it, it wasn't a you know clear straight line for me. I um, I didn't draw for for a long time. I was trying to you know earn a living, <laughs> break into graphic design, web design, uh, mm-hmm. illustration, whatnot. Back in the late nineties. Uh, early 2000s but you know it didn't didn't lead anywhere i didn't get any work and i i just you know had a million different jobs before the one i have now (laughs) i only broke into you know professional uh being a professional artist around i think i was 27 or 28 Mm -hmm. before that i was a record store clerk um i me too actually registry (laughs) (laughs) i um I did all kinds of jobs. I think I had 12 jobs before uh, being um, in video games and, and illustrating. Um, I used to drive the subway here in Stockholm even. Really? Uh, trying to, you know, yeah, you know, have a day job, uh, <laughs> hone your skills, yeah. and get work. But actually, it didn't lead anywhere. And I, I just got fed up with it. And I, I stopped. I didn't draw for, for years. Mm. And then I, I just, you know, came to this, this what do you call it, turning point. Yeah, in my life, where I was, you know, increasingly unhappy, I figured out that my my happiness is very much derived from from creating uh, art, yeah. stories, doing, doing these kind of things. So, my wife encouraged me to just quit my job, zero plans, <laughs> nothing, uh, and just make a portfolio, send it around, see what happens, and I did. I I had no savings, nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I quit my job, drew like a madman for I think two weeks or something, nonstop mm-hmm. building, sort of making a fake portfolio mm-hmm. of all kinds of things, from storyboards to uh, keyframes, concept art, character designs, comics pages, what have you. Mm-hmm. Compiled it into a thing, started sending around, and you know, in a couple of weeks, I had a, my first um, job in video games for a studio called avalanche and oh, i did right. concept art for a year and then dice uh, called me up and yeah I, I got into um making battlefield games for 12 wow. years that's crazy <laughs> that's before crazy. i left yeah so <clears throat> but, but during that whole time you know video game art video game production is a very different beast from from anything uh, regarding illustration and comics or or that kind of thing. So while yeah. sort of leading this uh, concept art, um, art direction life in yeah. video games, I kept at it, drawing on with pen and paper um, on the side. So for sure, all of the sort of experiences leading up to to um, where I'm right now, it's I think it has been really beneficial um, having a you know having had that life experience of doing <laughs> horrible jobs, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> spending your time you know watching shit tons of movies, listening to music. I'm um well, this is not video, but I have a my studio where I'm at um, has thousands of LPs covering yep. the walls. I'm sort of buried in music and, and films <laughs> and books. Yeah. All of that of just <clears throat> informs everything that I do. Um, I can't draw without listening to music. 
yep. or um, watching TV. Sometimes I'm watching, you know, Jalo movies while drawing. Yeah, it uh, it's that important. <laughs> yeah, man. see, it's funny because okay, so we both worked in record stores when we were kids. I the same way. Like I, I my living room. I think we're just, we're trying to decide if like the floor has enough structural integrity to hold the vinyls. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but uh, th- there's something about all of that. So, so even when you're working in music stores, and this was a huge influence on me, which ended up thrusting me into the world of music video directing years later is that there's so much art in a music store because you have all this album cover stuff and you have all yeah. of these posters and the end caps and everything that they're you're dealing with. And so that becomes such a massive influence. I know for me, a lot of it was like color and, and color theory um, and um, and even graphic design and how logos are placed. And, um, and when I was doing it, I'm sure it's the same for you. It was the period of CDs, which you had all this yeah. art that were like, you know, sealed behind like these little plastic cases. But now my older age that I've, I'm doing vinyls, there's something so great about having like this large art book that you can unfold and then sit down and play a record. You just feel so much more connected um, to the art and the music itself with those. Don't you agree? Oh, 100%. I mean, <clears throat> my, you know, growing up when you read comics or you <laughs> – um, look at album covers, or uh, in my case, I played video games early on. I think I got my first computer in 1984 or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I went out uh, cloudberry picking with my brother, you know, cloudberries. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> we You can pick those and sell them for profit, and we'd pick shit tons of cloudberries, uh, sell them for a massive profit, and bought computers and <laughs> NES systems and whatnot. But <clears throat> the, the first time I, I can recall you know connecting a person to uh, a piece of artwork was uh derek riggs who did the uh, iron maiden uh, yes. album comes way back and i i bought uh, lps and seven inch singles as a, as a child and i was in love with you know uh, heavy metal in that sense they had the best covers oh man like <laughs> and um, the best logos all yeah, that like a- so Mega, like I mean, the old Megadeth album covers and all that. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, all of that. So for sure, my, my uh, tenure working at a record store was definitely during the CD era. It was late 90s. Yeah. Um, I, still, I still kept buying LPs because I love that big format. Yes. There's nothing I enjoy more than, than getting a, a new LP that's a, you know, a gatefold album. Open it up and, and leafing through it, checking out the, the inner labels, <laughs> inserts, what have you that goes with it. And, you know, that has stuck with me for so long. Um, and it's it's one of those things that I love more than anything is designing LPs. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I mean, I, I need, you know, complete control of the whole thing. I mean, a lot of graphic design that I'm, I'm into, I, you know, picked up from album covers the way that they would design these old metal and jazz albums um, in the uh, so on the 60s onwards to the 80s. Yep. I'm still stuck in that era <laughs> when it comes to graphic design and typeface, um, typefaces and whatnot. But it's, yeah, it's, it's really stuck with me. And, and it's something for every LP that I do, I need to have uh, complete control 
of typesetting, um, barcode placing, all of those things. It's, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It's so so important to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I totally understand, man. I totally understand. And there's something so fun, and I, I've I've ranted and raved about this on prior episodes. But there's there's something so important to me about surrounding yourself, especially if you're trying to get into a creative mode and trying to get yourself into a creative mood, surrounding yourself with the tools to inspire. And mm-hmm. um, I, there's so many uh, younger kids that I know that are just like, why do you listen to vinyls when you have Spotify and you have everything on your list? It's like, there's something different about being in a room where you can smell all the vinyls. There's a vinyl on the shelf. You could pull that off. You can open up mm-hmm the artwork, and then you could just immerse yourself and you're not using your phone. You're not using these other tools that do other stressful things in life for inspiration. You're turning just just to these specific, like you, I know if I go pick up a comic book or I know if I go pick up a vinyl, I'm going to be transported to a different portion of my brain, to a different part of my life when I pull that thing out. And that's where I want to go for inspiration, you know? Oh, for sure. I mean, listening to to an, um, an LP is is a um, an active choice. You know, you have to take it out. You have to, uh, you know, brush it off a bit, sort of put the stylus on it. And it's you make conscious choices in everything that you do. Listening on, uh, I'm not bashing streaming or anything like that, but it it, it feels less active. It's yes. very passive in that sense. You can just toggle or scroll or whatnot. In the meantime, it, it's the same with books. I, <laughs> it's uh, apart from LPs and, and films, uh, I have yet another room filled with books. <laughs> and uh, I love physical books in that sense. You know, I, uh, I'm, I'm borderline perverse. I smell the books. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is. I think it is uh, super important with uh, the whole tactile sensation of it. And you know, for LPs, my my son, I have a kid. He's fifteen, mm-hmm. and he he's gotten into the the sort of just the, this last past year, um, really into um, uh, starting his uh, vinyl collection. Mm-hmm. So he he's grown up surrounded by movies and uh, films and LPs, but he's never really been that keen on it but it's that you know perfect formative age when you start digging around mm-hmm. exploring mm-hmm. your parents record collection and he's he's really into some some really good stuff and he um he <laughs> expressed the same awe when it comes to uh, uh, the needle in the groove on a on an lp that it's almost practical magic yes you know yes i still i still you know i get the science behind it i get the reasoning but still yeah. <laughs> that little needle going in in those sort of grooves how did it actually make that sound it's it's fantastic i love it yeah me too man it is it is magic and i did the same thing where i'm like how does this work and i did all sorts of research and then i'm like when you when you're looking at it you're like this is just wax <laughs> like, yeah. how, how is this fucking working this is vinyl like how is this fucking working you know so it's <laughs> It's crazy, man. It's crazy. And to get the sound quality off of it, which is beautiful, you're like, okay, so <laughs> this, yeah. this is genius is what this is. Um, <laughs> so obviously you're inspired by movies, obviously. Mm-hmm. Like when I look at your work and I look at your posing and your positioning, like have you ever done any photography? Have you ever shot through lens before? 
I uh, I did, but that was way way back in in, in school. I guess that is uh, compar- comparatively like high school or something. I um, mm. actually taught photography at my school, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm <clears throat> I think I'm 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 not comfortable um, in in photography. It hasn't really interested me much, but it, it's the same sort of mechanics that go into it when I'm doing video game work and um, especially yeah. 3D art. You place a camera, you you fiddle around with the with the lenses and and these things. So yeah, because it, it, it was more I was more keen on on drawing than than photography, but but for sure it is it's a massive. Uh, source of inspiration for me. I was curious about that, man, because one of the things that really struck me, especially in the Kali book, one of the things that really struck me were the lens choices, if I could say it that way, were the lens choices for your different panels, where I'm sitting mm-hmm. here going like, all right, this guy kind of knows what a 35 millimeter does. <laughs> 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 you know? It's kind of, it's really cool. And I think what I'm because when I was a kid, I wanted to be a comic book artist, and I I still draw. I do all my own storyboard work, but I um I didn't get into art school, and so that kind of derailed me for a while. And then um, I ended up turning to film and turning to photography, and I found myself trying to emulate sort of the extreme uh, angles or the extreme bowing techniques for action panels for all the, like, I grew up as like a Jim Lee kid and I grew up as a Todd McFarlane kid, like all those guys. And so I found myself trying to emulate that stuff with lenses and I, I still get envious. I get envious when I see <laughs> a panel that there's no physical way a lens can do, <laughs> can do what you guys can draw. Cause I, like the, the sense of energy and the kinetic energy and the, and and just it's 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 fetishizing movement, believe it or not. When I look at just these still frames that I that I I'm obsessed with, you know. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it is one of those things. You know, I've I love film, but I I'm you know as as most teenagers, you would make your own movies with your friends. <laughs> <laughs> And whatnot, but um, you know, making comics and and uh, you know sequential storytelling, it is you're limited. You can't really capture everything that you want in there. So you you sort of devise shorthands for for a full sequence or or um, mm-hmm. you know, telling the the action the way you want it to be because you're obviously drawing from film. I think. Even the earliest days of comics, um, well, action comics specifically, um, were really inspired by film. So it is. I think it is emulating, trying to <laughs> trying to make film, but um, you know, capturing um, events in a in different manner. And it's uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely a source for inspiration when it comes to specifically Kali. Whenever I would draw. Uh, I'll plan out uh, a page uh, from the script into to panels and whatnot. It is almost always, you know, begging the question: How would how would this look if if it was a Sergio Leone film? I was going to say know? that. Yeah, I was going to say that's exactly what I felt. You know, it's like once upon a time. You know, and it, it really feels that way. Um, and those low angles and like. <laughs> You know, it's just, you and I obviously grew up watching and fetishizing the same stuff. 
because when mm -hmm. I see like like her getting on the bike from behind and that low angle with the fat tire and like her standing uh, from behind on the cover with the gun hanging down, like these are keyframes that I would that I would rip <laughs> to make a movie. <laughs> Let's just be honest about it, like because they're so evocative. I mean, with with a lot of these images, not only are they energetic and exciting, but they're sexy. I mean, the way you draw women is very sexy. Um, and so it just, it's, it turns you on, it turns on your senses. It's fucking fantastic. That's why I grabbed the book, dude. That's why, I mean, it was, <laughs> and I got the hardcover. <laughs> so I was just like, fuck man. Yes. <laughs> Cause it's, it's, it's really hard to find this work currently. I think there's a trend that is happening in a lot of comic books right now, whether it's image books where everything is being drawn kind of. I want to say normal, like quote unquote unsexy. I think there's sort of like this desexualization of most of the material now. And there, there are um, a lot of different folks writing books right now. And a lot of it just feels, <clears throat> I'm not going to say any specific company, but a lot of it just feels like folks that are just trying to put down quick boards for a series and they're going to try to sell it to Netflix to make yep. it a series. And it's not really taking advantage of the art form the way it used to. You know, no, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> that is almost you know something that uh, Dan uh, Daniel Friedman, my uh, my friend who wrote the book, yeah, he's um he's a filmmaker. He's um, based in, in uh, L.A. He works in movies and um, writes scripts, and he but he has a background in comics. He used to be a, a colorist for comics, and he's written shit tons of really good comics. Mm -hmm. And he, he expresses the, the the sort of same concern when it comes to comics these days especially you know american comics it is it feels like you're trying to to um just get a get netflix <laughs> picking it up <laughs> and it's, it's being it's being produced to become a a um a, a streaming show and you know i i this is gonna sound horrible. <laughs> Dude, <do> I get, <laughs> I'm a busy guy. Um, I have a you know a full time job that takes up most of my time, um, and I I turn down most of the work that gets offered to me. And quite a lot of people want me to make comics, but the way it's often sort of laid out in the pitch is we're making we want to make this comic book that will have a sort of movie appeal mm -hmm. that the comic is, is being made as a device to sell it to, um, to a network or, um, streaming service or a movie. Mm -hmm. um, and Daniel and I, we, we just wanted to make the comic that we both wanted to read. It's, you know, it, we we had no zero ambition of making it, um, be, be, you know, selling it or having it, be a series or being filmed we wanted to just celebrate the art form because yeah. we both kind of like the same thing um but also it we wanted to make what was it he he, he said something funny on on a on a podcast that he was on he wanted we wanted to make the best and the funnest uh <laughs> comic book that we can make like a, a story that is dead simple it's a dead simple story it's like a i would describe it i think it is in the book um as one of my, my sort of description of the whole thing it's it's you know sergio leone meet 
it's Jack Hill or some other <laughs> exploitation <laughs> movie maker yeah. that celebrates the, the sort of uh, the hamminess, but also the um, the general sex appeal of these kinds of films. Something that has passion above all. It's mm-hmm. not it's not tacked on. It, it has depth, of course, it has, but it's it's not meant to make you think. It's supposed to be. You know, you read it in one sitting. Yeah, and then put it down. <laughs> but but I mean, there's a there's a. Th- I mean, this is what I love about this is why I do horror movies. The, it's about the craft, which is really yeah. great. And and so I think that uh, we're in a time period where people are are trying too hard to be clever. They're trying really hard to be clever, and uh, well, there was a whole period of time where it was all about the plot twist. Now it's you know it's all about dragging out stories and 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 trying to take characters on like these ridiculously huge arcs, and yeah. I think people are just losing <laughs> sight of the craft. And and when I I talk about this religiously, whenever I go back and I reference anything that I've seen that I like, it always comes down to a moment. It always comes down to a scene. It's never about the overall yeah. plot. I never go like, oh, that fuck, the plot of that fucking movie changed my life. You know, it's never, I never say that. It's always, there's that one yeah. shot. There's that <laughs> one shot that, that, uh, that makes this movie perfect for me. And then there's that one moment in comics, like, I'm staring, right now I'm staring at your Matrix poster, because it's just on my screen, and it's, for the audience that doesn't know it, you should check it out. It's this rad sort of interpretation of the movie. And you do such a great job of taking the famous Neo falling backwards and dodging bullets, but he's standing on this cement. And you want to talk about, I can get real nerdy about this. You want to talk about <laughs> movement in a still image. He's standing on the cement and the cement is cracking and falling away, and underneath is one of those robot squids that is reaching for him, which is super fucking rad. And just the idea that that one image sort of encompasses both the action and the sci-fi that this movie has in it, but also encompasses the visceral energy and the the terror that comes with a lot of those sequences in that movie. And as a director, as I'm watching this thing, the thing that stands out to me the most is the cracking of the cement. And I think just those little lines um, just add that kinetic. It's so fucking fascinating how just specific little lines like that make this image come to life and move for me. Um, anyway, I, 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 I don't know how I got up <laughs> on that diatribe. I was just sitting here in front of me. <laughs> Oh, but, uh, thanks. I mean, <clears throat> yeah, that was a hundred percent when sort of your early comment about the the moments. It's uh, it's one of those things. I I'm um, most people who know me, they just you know roll back their eyes heavily because they know I'm going to start talking about some obscure Jallo. Uh, <laughs> and and to be honest, I'm <clears throat> I confuse all of those Jolly a lot because it's it's specific scenes specific yeah. moments in these movies that stand out and like you're saying some some shots like i couldn't i couldn't tell you the plot of all the colors of the dark if you asked me <laughs> no <laughs> i couldn't either <laughs> <laughs> it, i i love that film but i i can't you know it, it's not like um 
um, Sergio Leone movie or, or uh, Tarantino movie that you could explain to someone. It is, it's, it's just that. And the Matrix posters, um, I'm glad you like it. It's, <laughs> it's not been, <clears throat> it's not been very popular with Matrix fans. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> really? What did they hate it or something? What happened? Uh, yeah, they they want it to be green, and they go, yeah, those squids. They they're never in the set. They're not in the same place when he's dodging. Oh bullets. come on. But, but then you know it's it's um the art form of making a movie poster is is making um an amalgamation of the of a, a moment or the the whole vibe of the film in one go um this one i i did with a, a guy i i've never met him we just know each other from uh online daniel taylor mm-hmm. is a Hungarian artist he is amazing he makes these really dreamlike Hyper detailed, uh, very Mobius eighties mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. kind of art, and he just reached out, and we just got talking over Instagram, I think, DMing each other, chatting there, and he goes, "We should make a poster." I go, "Yeah, let's make a poster." What do you want to make? He goes, "I don't know," and we just started talking. He goes, "What? What do you think of Matrix? <laughs> All the posters for Matrix—they're bullshit. Let's let's make one." And we just yeah, they bounced. I think two sketches back and forth and then we just made it very cool how'd you guys so what how did you split duties for that like how what was the deal um we sketched sort of the the layouts um we uh, did a couple each then we found the, the sort of concept and then we split it up i would draw the neo um um character and do the um um typography that kind of layout design mm-hmm. daniel would draw the um the robot squid and the sort of um cement stuff falling uh over and then we would um, bounce it back and forth he works digitally i work uh, on paper <laughs> so i would draw it on paper scan it and we would send it back and forth playing around with uh, sort of noodling over each other's stuff so make it a really cohesive piece that you can't really tell it's yeah you can't yeah i wouldn't have noticed i would if you hadn't told me i wouldn't have known that's pretty rad dude. that's pretty rad man that's cool so i see you know the other thing i really like about comics is that um you forget like if you get really immersed in them you forget that they're not moving because they, yeah. each one of these frames sort of stimulates your brain to fill in the blanks and to really so sort of go off the deep end into stuff. And I think it's, I always find it funny when people are like, ah, man, that movie's nothing like the comic book. I go, of course not, because <laughs> you had no budget for your imagination for everything that you filled in there, man. There's no way. Yeah. There's no way you could live up to that. Um, I mean, love him or hate him, I think the guy who does it, the the closest for me is probably Zack Snyder. I think Zack Snyder really has an really has a grasp on comic book framing, and he really does a pretty yeah. good job with that stuff. Um, you know, he, he might go off the deep end in certain angles, but I, I, I like I was just watching his his Justice League cut again the other day, and I'm like, okay, this movie may be a little long, but wow, that's cool. That's Jim Lee, and that's Jim Lee, and that's Jim Lee. Like this. <laughs> <laughs> so many fucking frames and shit. And, and I, I know I'm going to get a lot of shit from the listeners on the show, but another guy who I think does it well is Michael Bay. <laughs> Believe it or not, I think Michael Bay's frames are everything that Sergio Leone did, but just on crack. 
<laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. <clears throat> I'm so glad you, you uh, mentioned that because I, I think Michael Bay as a filmmaker has been, you know, I don't particularly like his films. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually don't <laughs> like his films, but there is a, a an astounding level of craftsmanship to yes. his work. I mean, when it, not just him, but the, the whole production around it, the, um, the cinematography, the editing, just how all of his movies are sort of planned out. I think they're, they're a nice spectacle. It's, it's something that I'm often referring to when, when watching films and uh, full sort of disclaimer here. I, I've not seen many of the Marvel movies. Uh-huh. They just bored me endlessly. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I'm not a superhero uh, person. I, I've seen enough of them. A few of them. I really enjoyed the James Gunn movies. I, yeah. I love those. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's 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 something that I think it gets lost on a lot of people is this the um, the sheer craftsmanship of of you know achieving movie magic. I think Michael Bay has has that in him. He it, it's um, Quentin Tarantino, for instance. I mean, he's he's going to go down in history as as one of the greats. I'm I'm pretty sure of it. Oh, sure. I yeah. adore his films, and he's one of those directors and filmmakers that transport you regardless of, of the thematics of the movie or whatever happens. I'm mean, a lot of people have been sort of, um, slamming once upon a time in Hollywood. I love uh, that. Movie. I love TV. that movie. Yeah. It, it transports you. It's, yeah. um, comparatively, I, I was watching uh, licorice pizza. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, is it called licorice pizza? I think so. I saw, I saw it on an airplane. I was like semi yeah. semi. I was like, yeah, okay. Did well, you- I saw it in the theater and it, it has the same, it's almost the same type of film. Yeah. It is a, a, a few days in time or a, a moment in time. But the way Tarantino does that is he really transports you. Yeah. You you forget time and place. You're completely enveloped in this dream, in this that's sort of movie magic. And no matter what you sort of uh, think of Michael Bell Bay's films, he he has that in him. I think even the worst films he's ever made, yeah. they do something. They transport you somewhere, and you're just in awe of of the spectacle. Let's take a second. And uh, as we cross into the new year, it's 2023. We're in the process right now of uh, locking down our new sponsors for the year and getting some returning sponsors. And uh, these three were the first to jump back on board for 2023. So very happy, very excited uh, with you guys. And I'm very excited with the engagement that the audience has given our sponsors. I've been saying this all the time on Instagram. The only way that we make money on this show is if you guys click through on the links. It's that simple. I go out to sponsors to make sure I keep this show free for you. All right. So um, the first guys to sign up, the first guys to be back, the first guys, the guys that have been with me since the beginning, since prior to the show, 
my buddies over at Puget Systems. If you are somebody looking for a brand new computer, maybe you got some Christmas cash, you got some holiday cash in your wallet, it's a new year, your resolution is that you want a stronger PC, you want to actually move into editing, or you want to uh, move into doing VR production, um, go to pewtersystems.com, build yourself a PC. I'm telling you right now, it's going to make your life a lot easier. They're upgradable systems. Uh, and Puget Systems is such a great resource, specifically because they're not trying to sell you their hardware. They are building machines from hardware that exists on the marketplace, and it is a competitive marketplace. So these guys know the best prices, uh, and they also benchmark test everything. So they know for sure if you're just going to build yourself an After Effects machine, it's probably not worth your money to buy the newest graphics card. They know specifically which ones work for that. They also know where to point you uh, for fixes and for update repairs, all that stuff. I mean, it's what I've always wanted. It's what Apple promised and never gave. You know what I'm saying? So like if you're in the market now, what difference does it make? All these programs run on both operating systems. Build yourself something that works for you. Build yourself something that is customizable to your needs. And if you, even if you don't want to buy a Puget Systems, they have consultations where if you're building your own PCs, they'll help you build a Puget System on your own. It's pretty rad stuff if you think about it. So go to PugetSystems.com, check these guys out. Like I said, they've been with me since the beginning. I run a Puget System. I'm in the process of editing two or three pieces right now on my smoking system. It's a 6K editor. And you know, if you want the same edit system I have, by the way, for you video editors out there, just write to Puget Systems and say, hey, can I get the same system that Mike has? Um, and they'll hook you up. All right? PugetSystems.com. Can't say enough great things about those guys. Okay, so... We're in talks right now with our next sponsor to do some contests and some giveaways. And this is a big one, especially if you guys live out here in Los Angeles. Um, our My favorite rental place out here in LA, the place that I rented twice so far, three times actually last year on the recent projects. This is where I go for like the high-end cinema lenses. This is where I go for like the newest and greatest cameras on the marketplace. Boca Rentals. Now, what you should do is go to BocaRentals.com and check out what it is that I'm talking about. This isn't your this isn't your your uncle's rental house. This is a rental house for new filmmakers. This is a rental house for new cinematographers, for young filmmakers. These guys really care about the next generation of filmmakers, and they support us really well, man. And they're built on a staff and on a crew that have been around for years, have worked for some of the giants, and they know how to do it better. Let's just say that. If you go to BocaRentals.com right now, they are the cinema resource, they are cinema resource specialists. Uh, they are premium full service cinema specialists located in the heart of Los Angeles. It is a one-stop shop for them. Um, they have a broad spectrum and array of cinema lenses covering all formats and lens mounts. I mean, we'll get, we get nerdy here. Let me just put it this way. They have the sexiest lenses on the marketplace. <laughs> so if you're seeing that super sweet show on Netflix and you're like, well, how the fuck did they shoot this? Go to BocaRentals.com and check out their lenses. And I'm also going to drive you to their Instagram page. They've got me driving you to its, their website, but go to their Instagram page too, because what they post on there is really cool. They actually do comparisons of what uh, the lenses they have in stock and what they shot is a very useful resource for us young filmmakers out there. Um, 
but they also are custom rig specialists so they can build you a custom rig thing it is one of the only places with the snorri cam so it's the only vendor west of texas to carry this famous rig do you guys know what the snorri cam is I'm sure you've seen it in a bunch of different movies. I know Darren Aronofsky used it in a lot of his movies. It's essentially this rig with an arm that straps to the actor's chest. And so it shoots a close-up of their face. So the camera moves with their body. So it gives you this very sort of trippy, like falling out of yourself sort of perspective. You've seen it a lot. It's a really cool rig. Um, I actually know the Snorri guys. So, uh, yeah, if you want really innovative, fun equipment like that, go to Boca Rentals. Go to BocaRentals.com. And uh, what we're going to try to do is set up some contests with these guys. So definitely keep listening to all of our ad reads and keep following me at Mike Petchy. And uh, I'm excited about them. Let me just say that. I'm very excited about them. Um, finally, the other sponsor on our show currently is Fujifilm. Yes, you all know about Fujifilm. Um, you know about my giveaways last year. We gave away a uh, free camera from these guys. I cannot say enough great things. Both Gina and I use Fujifilm stuff. She uses their GFX series. Um, I use um the uh x series cameras which i really love the xh2s which is a great uh video camera it's not just a still camera it's a fantastic video camera um shoots prores in camera um and uh i can't say enough great things about their internal their internal picture looks i think is what they're calling them um, but it's essentially LUTs in the camera. So, like, they have beautiful film grain. They have beautiful color representation. I mean, they're a lot of fun to shoot with. Um, the contest winner for our show, uh, he actually went off and he uses it as his main shooter for his production company that he has. He's got this great little production company. Um, and uh, he's been making money off this rig for a while. So I know that there are a lot of you that are trying to uh, figure out the new year for your business. You're trying to figure out, you know, what kind of camera should I have in my shop? Don't go buying one of the big expensive ones. That's the, here's my advice. Make friends with a local rental house so that you can rent all the big boys, right? But get yourself a camera that you can have in your place that you can use as a B camera on your shoots, but you can also use as that camera to do those smaller projects. You can use as a camera to practice techniques and ideas. I mean, with specific, you can get a PL lens mount adapter for the H2S and then put anamorphics on the fucking thing. How cool is that? <laughs> you know what I mean? So um, definitely check these guys out. Definitely go to Fujifilm. And I know you guys are in the market for it, and I know some of you guys are trying to save some money. I'm posting in the description of this episode a, a bunch of different links. So each of these links, if you click on them, they'll let Fujifilm know that I sent you. That's important. But secondary, there's a refurbished link in there. And they have a lot of really great deals on camera bodies that have been refurbished and on lenses that have been refurbished. And I've worked, I've bought refurbished cameras in the past and I've shot with them and I haven't had a problem. So... I would definitely check all that stuff out. You'll find everything you need in the description of this episode or on today's episode page at inlovewiththeprocess.com. All right. Um, and that's it, man. Those are our sponsor reads for today. Let's get back to it. 
I think it comes down to like, uh, I've used this word a bunch so far on today's episode, but I think it comes down to like, you know, the fetish. Like, they, I think these guys fetishize specific things in their lives, these specific moments. And Tarantino gets a lot of shit for his foot fetish, but he has <laughs> more than that. More than that, he's got a huge music fetish. And when yes. you when you watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that whole movie's practically scored just by radios, like like practical radios. Like there's. Yeah. There's a sequence where they're just driving around and the, and the passing cars are scoring the scene with what's being played on those cars. So it's 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 gorgeous. And it's obvious that he was tapping into stuff that happened in his life when he was a child that he remembered. Like, I, I was just talking on a prior episode about um, creating uh, moments in film. And I had a, um, a writer on the show and, and he was – he kind of blew my mind a bit and it's so simple. It's so stupid, but it just, it's one of those simple, stupid things that you really just don't make note of. And I'm still trying to do this in my life, which I should do. And he was like, look, what you should do is you should keep a journal. You should have a journal and you know, you don't, you don't just write about your dreams and shit. He's like, the next time you have a fight with your wife or your girlfriend, go write down what it felt like, what you saw, what colors you saw, what the environment felt like, what were you looking at, what were you staring at when you had that fight. Next time you have a great experience, next time you have a terrible experience, write down all those details. And essentially what you're doing is you're putting together a book of emotional reference for you. So if you ever have to do a bit where you're riding in a car, you know, with the top down through 1970s, uh, you know, Hollywood, you're going to remember the leather s- sounds of the seats. You're going to remember what the wind felt like or sounded like as it was running through your hair. You're going to remember all those things. And, th- and through the process of fetishizing that stuff, I think that's what transports us into those moments. And I think that's a lot of what's missing from some of the bigger films that are out there where you're losing a singular voice because so much of it is in post. And so it, yeah. it becomes sort of like this, you know, management job of you sending out scenes to like 40 or 50 fucking concept artists that are, you know, bringing in some of their own elements, but it just becomes so pasteurized at that point. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, it is. It, definitely. That, that sounds intriguing, but also kind of insane. (laughs) (laughs) I can see where where, where that person comes from. I think that informs so many things. It's it's often those details or things that you connect through um, an emotional response to something happening that that gives um, the storytelling personality. Yeah, you know, not just in the way people express themselves in dialogue or anything like it's it's everything that surrounds the the whole experience. What what is problematic in a lot of uh, blockbuster movies, let's call them that, mm-hmm. um, currently is they're very, for lack of a better word, they they're just presenting. Yeah these things they they don't necessarily have inherent um um, value in the scenes they're just you know stacking these events on top of each other and with the hope that the they will have that you as an audience will have the same emotive response as you would if you were on a roller coaster more or less but it it lacks the the rest of the detail 
yeah. just the, the 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 tiny bits that come in there, like you're mentioning there, like the detail of things. That's what gives it a, a completely different experience. And I think when it comes to certain films, especially of a of my favorite era in in uh, in cinema, it's like the '60s and '70s. Mm-hmm. That there were a lot of people with enormous passion for the craft but they didn't necessarily have the skill uh, but i i love a lot of what people refer to as trash cinema mm-hmm. but you can tell when when it's made with passion it's made of course with the the intent to make money but it was they didn't have the reference point of of um, many of the filmmakers today that that almost in an incestuous manner, you know, yes. <laughs> make der- derivates of a derivate, you know, yeah. they're really super derivative. These uh, uh, hammy trash uh, <laughs> cinema filmmakers in the day, they at least brought the passion in. And I can respect that a lot. And I, I pick up a lot from that. I was just um, <laughs> showing one of my, it's one of my favorite films, actually, um, The Car. If you've oh, seen yes. it, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> the Elder Brolin. Um, <laughs> I love that film. And my wife just went, What is this piece of trash? <laughs> oh, come on. It's great though. It's great. <laughs> well, well, I, I sold it in as as it's it's Jaws, but the uh the shark is a car. Yes. And she goes, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> but yeah. <clears throat> no, I, 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 I love stuff like this. Um, but, uh, you know, there are a number of different kind of, um, uh, what would you call that? It's uh, these schools of thought when it comes to uh, yeah, films in general. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, this, this is something that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to educate my listeners to. I think that movies do different. The same thing with art. It, it does different things. Right, so like you, you look at a at a at a movie poster, right, and it may be beautifully drawn, but that's essentially it's selling a movie, right? Yeah. So it's a sales thing for a movie. Um, I get a different experience looking at a movie poster than I do if I go look at like a Renoir or if I go look at a painting. That each each one of these moments, or if I go look at like a, a very high detailed print of a photograph. Um, yeah. Each of these things is a different experience. And I don't know when we got to this point. It's probably because there's so much of it and we're just mowing down films and, and content like cheeseburgers at this point. But <laughs> where where everybody decided that there's a certain criteria for what makes something good, right? Yeah. So, so like everybody's like, look, there needs to be the proper three-act structure. There needs to be... Uh, a character's journey, and there needs to be um, uh, very identifiable emotional themes that we can all uh, relate to. And when you have these movies that need to make a return of like 300 million, then it's dangerous for them to have any specific voice because it alienates folks. Like, yeah, I, I'm not to plug my own shit, but I'm dealing with this right now. Where with my movie Twelve Cam it went viral online, and then I've been sending it out to folks, and my movie's very, <laughs> very tonally based. It's all in Russian. It's like this very. I don't know if I sent you the link for it. It's very 
very tonally based. It's strange. And a lot of people love it, but I very much have picked, I put my feet in the sand and I said, this is what it's going to be. And so you have people that fucking hate it. Like I have people that write to me and go, this is the worst piece of fucking trash I've ever seen in my life. And I love that. That's, that's part of the, the, the process because I'm not making something that appeals to everybody because then if I am, I'm not really making anything at all. I'm just. No, exactly. That's, that's, you know, the main gripe I have with a lot of stuff that you see uh, today, um, specifically, you know, Netflix or, mm-hmm. or any other streaming service, you, you kind of just go, eh, it's all right. And, yep. you know, if no one hates it, then surely no one loves it. It's just, you know, it's, it's all right. And, and that to me is, is a worse fate than death for a a film. (laughs) You did send me the, uh, the link to it. I I watched it last night. It was terrific. Oh, thanks dude. I mean, I I loved it so much. The, um, and I was, you know, a lot of things in there, uh, to talk about that I really liked, but (laughs) I have the utmost respect um for you um choosing to um have everyone speak russian yeah 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 that, that was, was fun. you don't <laughs> you know <clears throat> seeing as that that's something you know you don't see a lot of uh, times happening with in uh, specifically american productions <laughs> um, sub- subtitles like i have uh, friends in the us and i will i will recommend them you know uh, south korean films or uh, french films and german especially a lot of italian films and they mm-hmm. go hmm is it dubbed going <laughs> Oh, come on. Well, you can read, can't you? <laughs> it's, but it also, it. I think, I mean, I'm, I'm from Sweden. We we never dub films here, yep. uh, apart from you know, kids' movies. But um, films always um, uh, get translated, and you have the subtitles. And sometimes I find myself switching on subtitles for um english language films because <laughs> it there's a some slight you know sense of they're supposed to be there yeah it, it almost adds a layer of storytelling to it i was watching uh streets of fire uh, again <laughs> a couple of nights ago uh-huh. and it didn't dawn on me that then i had the uh the subs on and the subs were in english <laughs> 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 Didn't even, didn't even uh, bat an eye. They were just there. It's <laughs> well, I mean, but but for me, so for me, there it's like a comic book again. And I have this ritual when I get a book. So like, if I first pick up a book on a shelf, right, I go into the store, and then I'm I'm sort of dealing with my fear initially, where I'm like, the cover's really cool. How's the interior art? That's the first thing I do is I just sort of flip through it and I go, okay. Mm-hmm. And none of it's really registering. I'm just looking for stuff that stimulates me. And I go, all right, this is a great book. Then what I do is I take it home. I have this weird ritual. I'll take it home and then I'll just flip through it. And I'll flip through it and I'll just, I won't even read it. I'll just flip through it and 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 let the sort of story play out visually for myself. And then I go back and I read it again. So I have... I, it, it's probably because as a kid, I hated reading. And so that's how I started reading comic books, <laughs> sort of going yeah. through that process. But I feel the same way about, um, you know, subtitled cinema. And what I tried to do, and I've talked a lot about 12K on the show, so I won't go too far into it. But what I tried to do um, when I did this film is I shot it in a language that I don't speak. 
So I had to have multiple translators there on set. And what it ended up doing is it became very much like a comic book or very much like doing a silent film for me where I was studying body positioning and body posturing. And, and I was trying to tell a story with the lens as far as what the characters were doing enough so that you didn't really need to read the subtitles. So when you watch the movie, it's like the first pass that I would have to a comic book where I'm like, yep. I get it. I generally get what's going on. And so then when you go back down through it the second time, you're getting some more information. You're getting some of the, some of the, like the more textured, it's like the frosting on the fucking cake where you're like, Oh, cool. Like this is, <laughs> this is what's going on. And so that was the, that was the sort of intention behind making that. It was very much inspired by comic books actually. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. You, Cause I, <laughs> I, uh, sort of making mental notes, watching it going, well, <clears throat> Does he understand Russian? How? <laughs> no. How do you direct people um, not knowing the um, the sort of uh, specifics of the words they're saying? But like the point you're making, I think that comes through very clearly in in the film that you could almost watch the entire thing unsubbed in Russian and still get what's happening. Yeah, it is. It is a lot of. Um, um, what is that? It's like sequential storytelling, like sure, in, a, sure. in, a, in a comic book. There is a an, an a visual and um, auditory. Yes. I don't know if that's a word in English. It's, it's a word. Um, it's a word. Yeah. yeah. Sort of, um, emphasis being put to the scenes. You kind of you you get it, and they they just play hand in hand to deliver the the story. I mean, the finer points of the ending might get lost on someone not um, understanding Russian if only seeing it in Russian. But I, I still they I still think they would come away with the same response from it. Yeah. It is I, Yeah. I would I would argue that you're gonna get the more important elements of it without the dialogue. I think that yeah. if you you because that's the hard stuff as a filmmaker to do. Like if you've got a great script and you've got a couple of competent actors like any anything you see on fucking TV, right? And and you just sort of have a scene and you go, "All right, I need coverage over the shoulder, over the shoulder, wide shot." All right, just just say the fucking script. And for for most television stuff, the the biggest problem that TV still has that movies don't have is time. They just don't yeah. have the physical fucking time to add the texture, to add the detail that we can do for films. And so there's, you know, I, I, my biggest fear uh, when I made that movie and I made the next movie, I'd get real fucking frustrated when I got put in a corner where I'm like, I don't want this to feel like fucking law and order, dude. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, I don't want, I don't want over the, like, oh, we got to go handheld and do some close ups. Fuck that. Like, can we please tell a story with the, the camera positioning, the camera angle, the depth of field, the way people block in the frames? Can I, can I please tell a story with that stuff? Because that's, what has always excited me about visual storytelling, whether it's comic books yeah. or whether it's cinema, you know? Yeah. I, mean, that, I think that, that's a um, hallmark of almost every film that I really like it, that has a strong visual storytelling element, even if it's a really, you know, um, we call them chamber dramas here in Sweden. <laughs> like, you know, people in a room talking. Yeah. But if it's if it's told visually in in a very 
interesting way, it still enthralls you. It still grabs you and doesn't let go. It's I think that's when you see the the shortcomings of uh, a lot of filmmakers is even the most simple narrative device of of people talking and and, and you know not necessarily <laughs> exposition but just capturing something dialogue or anything if it's done without visual imagination or um, a keen eye it can become incredibly dreary yes. like uh, british tv <laughs> it's, it's one of the worst yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's a bunch of talking heads and, to- and that's but I, I would argue that a lot of the series that are coming out right now are just, they're finding their own dreary fucking formula where it's like, okay, here's some clever fucking dialogue. And these guys are going to go back and forth on clever dialogue. And then they're going to rip from some other director. They're going to rip from some movie that influenced them when they were younger. Got it. That's going to be injected. So let's yeah. let's inject Tarantino or let's inject something else into the sequence and now this is just essentially on page this is soap this is soap opera drama <laughs> yep. so now let's try to make it not feel like soap opera drama with all of the trappings and all the great things that soap does which is keep you enthralled by it's almost like with the dialogue they're giving you the highest sugar intake or the highest salt intake on a burger, right? It's like if you watch one of those celebrity chefs and they make a fucking cheeseburger, they salt that fucking patty like 12 times. They're like, salt, 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 you know? And so like, that's a lot of this dialogue on these like soapy, trashy series that are out there. And so when people are watching it, I was just talking to my, my, I'm on a super rant here, but I was just talking to my friend about it the other day. And I go, dude, they're so crafted and, and so high uh, emotionally. They're so emotionally set at such a high level that you can pause it and go get food, or you can pause it and piss, or you can pause it and text like twelve times during the half hour and yep. still come back in and, and be like, "Oh, this is super salty. This is super great," and it doesn't have any substance. There's fucking zero substance. Like yep. nothing looks cool. It's not really telling you anything. It's just a big salty fucking cheeseburger in a chain somewhere. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> uh, Friedman, uh, Daniel wrote Carly. He, yeah. um, so we, we bounced the, 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 uh, the story back and forth. We kind of just agreed where we want to make the comic, the uh, comic book. We, we both want to read, <clears throat> but he ended up axing a lot of the script when I was turning in the pages, he goes, uh, huh, well, we don't need this. He, he, and I will quote him on that. He hates exposition. <laughs> he is not a fan of the, the classic uh, act structure or anything like that. And <clears throat> so some of the, the, the comics that I've done in the past, I've done a shit tons of comic book covers, uh, but not a lot of people aware of this, but I, I've made, a great deal of comics with a lot of them not seeing publication for reasons. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I've made one with, uh, Alish Cott, uh, who made zero. I made an, uh, an issue of zero, uh, with him. The sort of the whole culmination of the story arc of zero. I made issue number 17 of 18. Uh huh. And we made, um, um, a five issue series for AWA and, it just, it it just 
got canned. <laughs> oh, I'm fascinated. Okay, so why did it get canned? I'm fascinated. <clears throat> well, um, we had a, a me and Alish had a, a bit of a difference of uh, opinion with the uh, the um, the heads of AWA. It was a creator-owned seri- um, comic, mm-hmm. and they wanted um, creative control of how we finished the story. And uh, we were kind of not having it. So they went, oh, well, let's just cancel it then. Let's can it. Went, sure. Uh, shame. Because <laughs> it's... <laughs> Well, we got paid handsomely. It was a, it was a fun, fun gig. But uh, <clears throat> I'm uh, digressing. <laughs> sort of um, uh, my some of my favorite comic book work that I've done myself have been silent comics. I did one for an anthology, which is um, after Kali, the the one that I'm most proud of. It is, I think it's twelve pages, and not a single word is written anywhere. It's oh, completely wanna... silent, and it is sort of just visual storytelling. And that's something that both Daniel and I are really into. And we're, you know, he, him being a filmmaker, we're <laughs> nerding out over films all the time. And I, we just had this, the same kind of discussion when it comes to um, the narrative structure of, of TV and, and movies these days. I mean, yeah. uh, TV is maybe the wrong word for it, even though I'd argue Netflix is turning into TV. Yes. You know, everything that yes. streaming was supposed to not be uh, TV is turning more into TV. With, yeah, no, uh, it's, there's nothing like uh, fucking looking for the new Brad Pitt movie and it's running up alongside the new like TLC, like home build it movie on like the same yeah. scroll, you know? Like, <laughs> what and you have fuck? to watch a bunch of ads to, uh, yeah. to get there. Yeah. But um, the, the stuff that we were <clears throat> sort of um, agreeing with, we, you know, we, we're in agreement with everything. He's he's like a kindred spirit. We almost look alike. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> we never really argue about anything, but we will argue together when it comes to stuff that we're sort of upset about. We speak, you know, um, mm-hmm. once a month or so over Zoom. Mm-hmm. Just chatting <laughs> like you would in the olden days, phone someone up, and, but we have an Atlantic <laughs> between us. And I, I was just <sighs> telling him the... the, the the things that I admire the most in in films is when it grabs you without even having anyone say stuff. Yes. I was, um, you know, as part of the, the education of my kid, we're watching a lot of my favorite films. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them, he agrees, are, um, you know, masterworks. Others, he, he does not. He is a fan of Khodorovsky, which is kind of fun. <laughs> like Holy Mountain, he goes, that's one of his favorite films. And Stanley Kubrick, he, he loves that. He uh-huh. he doesn't have a lot of patience for my uh, my giallo. <laughs> and these kind of snabby, uh, sexual-fueled uh, um, uh, sort of thrillers. He's not, he's not a big fan of those. Oh, but come on. I was um, showing him um, one of my top films of all time, Sorcerer. Uh, mm-hmm. Friedkin movie. I love that fucking movie. I love that movie. Yeah. It, it is. Has, it. I've seen it countless times, and I'm still at the edge of my seat in certain scenes. Yes, and there's not very few words being said. You just understand through the stellar acting of the of the the whole cast. Just the just you know expression acting. <laughs> yes, like proper. And the editing and the cinematography, everything plays into it. And um, uh, uh, Rififi 
the the French um, um, bank oh, robber yeah, movie. Yeah, 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 Have you yeah, seen yeah. it? Yes, long time it ago. A, I mean, it has a segment. I, I don't think I'm exaggerating if I'm saying it's like 15 or 20 minutes long when mm-hmm. they're doing they're performing the heist. Mm-hmm. Not a single word is being said. Nothing. It is they're in dead silence doing their work, and it is nail bitingly exciting. And you know you don't need that much else. And some of the best stuff um, that you see in in, in films. Um, they they lack that exposition. You don't need all of that. It's it's things happening and it's it's grabbing you, grabbing your attention just by, you know, casting a spell on you. <laughs> well, dude, <laughs> just a hundred percent. I I just had a script sent to me that has like one line of dialogue and it's the last shot of the movie and I'm like, this movie's fucking great. Oh wow, yeah, like it, it's the. I always joke about this when 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 we. My writing partner, Will Simmons, and I, he writes my feature stuff. Uh, we always roll our eyes about horror. I love horror, but one of the hardest parts about selling horror and having to deal with studio people is that everybody wants explanations for everything. So they want yep. to know like the origins and where's this creature come from and is there some sort of deity or is there some sort of demon that actually exists that we can tie this creature to that people already understand. And I'm like, that's not <laughs> fucking terrifying. I said, all right, look, we're all sitting in a restaurant and all of a sudden a fucking eight foot fucking werewolf bursts through the door, starts tearing people's heads off. You and I jump over the counter, grab whatever weapon we have. And and in that moment, I don't turn to you and go, hey, do you think this guy, do you think this demon's from like ancient fuck? Uh, uh, Europe. I think that's a fucking lichen out there. You know what I mean? Like that doesn't happen. That's not what's scary. What's scary is, is how you're processing fear and what is heroic is how you're standing up against fear and what you're doing for that. And you can tell by how a character responds to something intense physically, who they are more than what they say. And so why the fuck are we so hyper-focused? It's like, Dialogue is the fucking Jimmy's on a cupcake. All right. It's it's the <laughs> it's it's the the top layer. And and when done well, Tarantino crushes it. When done well, it is pure bliss. But most dialogue is fucking trash. And it it's it lays upon the director and the actors to try to rescue this fucking dribble that's on the page. And as you're going through trying to get that performance out, um, maybe you get it on set, maybe you don't. I don't know how many times I've had an actor turn to me and go, this is not how I would say this shit. And I go, okay, throw it out. Um, Or (laughs) when you get into the edit room and you're starting to cut the scene, you're like, cut out all that fucking bullshit. Like it, there's a, I think a lot of folks don't realize that you have to write dialogue and you have to write stuff on scripts to get people excited about a movie, to get people interested in a movie because it's just words on a page. There's no visual. Uh, appendage with it and as soon as you get into making a film you throw all that shit out because you're making a movie it's a visual medium you know yeah and that that's one of the, those things that i uh, resonate really well with um certain films when they when they don't necessarily follow you know proper logic i'm i'm really fascinated by movies that are, are run on dream logic yes i think they're they can be absolutely <laughs> captivating yes. like um some of uh Dario argento's best movies are they're not logical no of course i mean some <laughs> of them some of them 
you know, they they lie to you. <laughs> so he sort of flips it around, things that he has shown you, all of a sudden goes, no, that didn't happen. Not a big fan of those things, but it breaks the contract with you. But when 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 they're not following a, a proper structure that it is, it's like uh, um, Suspiria or Inferno, really interesting films that they, they do that so well. They, again, transport you somewhere. It, it doesn't have to make sense. You just, you know, go along with it. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's something um, uh, a couple of years back, or not a couple, a long time ago, I met um, Bob Engels, the... Mm. Um, um, was he screenwriter f- um, colleague of, of David Lynch when they're mm-hmm. making uh, uh, Twin Peaks and, and Firewalk with Me? Um, really fascinating guy, and above all, he ba- made the best <laughs> David Lynch impression of all time. <laughs> he, would, he would mimic his voice to uh, f- a fantastic effect. He was, for whatever reason, visiting Stockholm, mm-hmm. and um. A couple of us at Dice got invited to just listen to him talk about Twin Peaks. <laughs> I don't know so how that happened. Someone knew someone, but he uh, <clears throat> he explained um, the whole David Lynch dream logic um, structuring so well huh. because he was, uh, you know, his background was in in screenwriting, and he, you know, you follow the rules, you get to know the the um the director and the principal screenwriter and you sort of make these treatments to the script and whatnot and he just first time meeting uh, lynch asked sort of so what are we doing <laughs> twin peaks what, what's it about and he just went it's about cool people doing cool stuff <laughs> very cool <laughs> so that was it he goes yeah that that was his pitch that was how he explained it and he would just make stuff up uh, on the go because he didn't he would you know almost <clears throat> write the, the script as they were shooting sometimes completely make stuff up he uh-huh. would change uh, the script overnight because he had a dream and he would uh, sort of come in the morning and in the same voice explain to angles uh, calling him bobbers that he'd uh, he'd had a dream <laughs> and they have to get a horse and and all these things, but the the thing that fascinates me the most with that process is it does make sense when he explains it that a lot of these completely random dream elements of uh, Twin Peaks specifically, but you know a lot of uh, Lynch's films um, uh, as a whole in his oeuvre is he makes these things seemingly at random, mm-hmm. but he knows subconsciously that he can tie it all together down the line. Mm. So they weren't sure of how they're going to tie anything together when they just, you know, made all these loose ends everywhere across that whole story arc, but it gave him the, uh, the sort of the, the way out to uh, connect these things and, and be uh, unpredictable and not necessarily have to abide by a structure that felt good six months ago. Yeah, but he, he can keep it loose and and surprise himself even. You know that sometimes he'd he'd have a dream and come up with a solution for things. Going, yeah, let's let's make this happen. <laughs> and I think that is incredible, and it must be so liberating to do something like that. But then, of course, we all know it didn't really pan out that well with the studio and and all that. But it's it's still a fascinating um, process. Yeah, no, no. I mean, and at that point, 
Because <clears throat> when you think about that, like I think about the the complete opposite of that, right? I think of Lost, you know, that old TV series yeah. Lost, where they're just they had no fucking plan out on that, and they're just throwing all these tropes at you, all this. All this same old bullshit, like, oh, my backstory was that my husband cheated on me and I tried to kill him. And it's just all the same old shit that you've seen everywhere else. I'd yeah. rather be in Lynch's situation where he's like, all right, how do I have to, how can I make the horse make sense? You know what I mean? Because <laughs> at, at that point, at least you have a puzzle of strange stuff that you're trying to make sense with, as opposed to a puzzle of like, you know, chicken nuggets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to arrange in such a way where it's like, oh, they have to dip into the barbecue sauce at the end. You're like, Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> you know? oh, man, I have such a bad opinion towards a lot of that stuff. I, it, it's just, you know what it is, is that it's it doesn't feel exciting. Like I, I just went to Avatar and I mm -hmm. uh, saw the theater, and I was it was a great theater experience. It was a fun, exciting theater experience, and, uh, and done by a guy that has a specific voice and. People have been complaining. They're like, well, it's just a typical revenge story. It's like, who gives a fuck? Like, the, the rest of the movie is the reason you go is to be immersed and to, like, stare into this, this alien whale eye and, like, suddenly disappear into the emotions of, of nature and shit. It's like, okay, that's, that's what the experience is for it. I, I just want more crazy shit. You know, I'm 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 kind of excited because Nicholas Refen's series I think comes out this week, and his stuff always goes off the deep end, and I'm into that. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I don't. I, <laughs> I think it's great because you and I have the same taste for you know what what some would call '70s trash cinema. I love mm -hmm. it. I've always been a grindhouse. I, I did grindhouse movies when I was younger. Um, I've always been a huge fan of that stuff, and. I'm always pulling references. I get I get yelled at by my agents and stuff where I'm putting together decks and I'll like reference they call her one eye and they're like, take that out of there. <laughs> 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 and I'm like, oh, but there's that part in the movie where they use a real cadaver's eyeball and they cut into a cadaver's eyeball. We should find a fucking eyeball, maybe from some dead animal and cut into that. Yeah. Like, take that out of there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, it's 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 one of the uh, the gems of Swedish cinema. <laughs> Thriller, a cruel picture, as it's called. <laughs> yeah, man. Went to, um, a film festival uh, in the nineties, and the uh, director of the film. Um, we had a uh, growing up. I'm I'm not from Stockholm. I live in Stockholm, and I've been uh, here since late nineties. Okay, but I grew up way way up north uh, above the arctic circle where it's you know perpetual darkness oh wow uh, <laughs> during winter and perpetual sunlight during summer wow you know you've heard the stories like in in those uh, very northern parts of uh, canada more or less or alaska maybe uh -huh. um but we had a wonderful film festival that's still um, ongoing um so some of my best cinema experiences were as a teenager going you know just buying planning out my um we had two um um two um movie theaters mm -hmm. that were running these movies back to back and you'd plan out your <laughs> your entire week of uh or was it four days or something that you'd plan it out and go see every film that you that wasn't you know running at the same time and see amazing stuff like true romance uh, was the first time i saw it it was at a film festival the the dark half 
oddly enough, was the first <laughs> showing of the dark half in Europe. It was a work print for whatever reason. Still had the time code on it. <laughs> it's weird. That's um, cool. That's very cool. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's odd, and and a lot of these very um, odd cinematic experiences were had um, sort of at this um, uh, film festivals and. Um, at one point, uh, this guy, uh, Boo Avibanius, the guy who made Thriller, um, came there to, um, they'd, they'd found a restored, um, not restored, uh, the original um, uh, film rolls for it mm. uh, in the cans. And Super cool. Sort of show it uh, uncut because he got severely cut. Yes. Uh, came out and he goes, yeah, this is uh, the, the movie, it's uncut. And there were some, some tangential um, <laughs> connection to my hometown, Kiruna. It's a mining town. Because uh, some of the, the people, um, th- there's some soldiers fighting in it, I think. Or d- instructing somehow with fighting. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, they were soldiers <laughs> from my hometown. That was the connection. <laughs> um, and he he'd made... Uh, these fun remarks that he goes, I've made a lot of films in my day. This is one of the worst. <laughs> but it seems, you know, it's the one people remember, the one people like. I was the first one to do this super, super uh, ultra rapid slow motion yes. thing movie yes. and whatnot. And he presented it. And, and <laughs> as the movie was finished, he was just exclaimed going, oh my God, it was awful. We <laughs> hadn't seen it in years. And- but yeah, <clears throat> that's one of the... Um, isn't that is it Tarantino? Who's, yes, it's one of his favorite films. Yeah, Super yeah, old. yeah. He he loved it. It, it's it's very much like <laughs> it's like uh, the raw. It's the raw form of Sam Peckinpah. That's <laughs> what yes. I would say. Is really what it is. It's just yeah, like, yeah. That that has to be his his uh, prime uh, inspiration. Yeah, no, it's the raw the most, form of that. The most cynical Peckinpah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love those movies, man. Like, I can see why a lot of folks. I mean, once again, they're not trying to appeal to everybody. You know, you, you go back and you look at a lot of those really intense horror movies from the seventies, like uh, Let the Right not Let the Right One In. It was uh, Last House on the Left, and yeah, yeah. or um, I Spit on Your Grave. You you know, you go back and it's like these are horrible movies about uh, visceral situations that. I, I get it. You, they're not built for everybody, and you're not going to walk out of there feeling, you know, fucking great <laughs> about your life. <laughs> but there are so many, there's so much great stuff, especially as a storyteller, there's so much great stuff that I pull from every film. And yeah. it, it doesn't matter if it's a piece of shit or if it's the most inspiring thing. Like, I, I, I end up getting more excited when I find great stuff from B movies that I will use for my films. Then yeah. if I'm like, you know, watching a P.T. Anderson movie and everybody's like, you know, you know, that part and there will be blood. It's like, yeah, everybody's fucking seen that. I'm, I don't want to do that. Like, <laughs> but, you know, you go back and you watch like Sonny Chiba, like Street Fighter and like the X-ray punching of the skull and like. Oh, that's oh. the best. <laughs> yeah, dude. Well, yeah. Yeah. dude. It's, <clears throat> it's it's stuff that you you um, sort of, I, I, I think there's an immense value in, in um, building uh, something that I, I call my my uh, sort of um, reference library. It's a mental reference library mm-hmm. of you know just watching 
films, listening to music, reading books and whatnot, and just logging it in there and all these things happen. You don't necessarily need to know exactly where it was um, coming from or how it ended up sort of lodged in your memory. But a lot of these shock value films or B movies that have these, the intent to just be uh, shocking in their own right can sometimes completely, you know, strike gold. Yes. It's, um, again, it's a, uh, apologize for more David Lynch reference. Here. <laughs> <laughs> I do love David Lynch. This is not why I'm <laughs> referencing it, but, um, I was thinking through the, the lesser known films of, uh, Mario Bava, one of my favorite filmmakers, mm-hmm. um, unearthing a lot of, uh, his films that were pretty hard to come by, um, until, you know, Arrow. Or, or these yes. companies started getting um, restoring them in their original uncut version. Um, and I saw Kill Baby Kill oh. uh, for the first time, I think, I don't know, five years ago, six years maybe. Yeah, It was fairly recent. It's one of the, the films of his that I hadn't seen before. And towards the end of it, it is it's incredible that I, I didn't know. And it wasn't clearly... Um, explained by anyone uh, <laughs> I, I didn't even know it was the whole black lodge uh curtain running uh cooper chasing himself yep. in 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 twin peaks is lifted straight from the final uh, parts of kill baby kill no kidding no even kidding. the even the angles he just replicated them shot by shot of him running through the same room yeah. uh catching up to himself yeah. As he's running, and it's I don't th- you know David Lynch is is not a he's not a fool. I don't think he meant to sort of make that and and claim that he invented it because it's clearly yeah like reference and an homage. A lot of his cinematography um, is 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 clearly inspired by uh, Mario Bava, uh, especially um, Black Sunday, um, Blood and Black Lace, and that yep it's Black Sabbath yeah. Yep the <clears throat> gel lighting and, and really adventurous camera angles and yep. placing the camera inside a bookshelf <laughs> and all these things. It's, you can tell he it's, it's an homage, uh, from, uh, to a master, but it was staggering. And, you know, a lot of people have been, uh, they aren't necessarily really that into Mario Bava. I think everyone should be. Yeah. He's one of the greatest filmmakers. But when I show this to people, my friends at work, uh, friends who are into film and whatnot, they almost, you know, stand up <laughs> from sitting like, holy, you didn't expect this. This is a fairly, you know, slow-moving, gothic sure. ghost story, more or less, with that creepy kid with the ball that Fellini also lifted wholesale for his Toby Dammit. Uh, yeah. He just... Lifted it completely, almost the same actor, (laughs) the kid with the ball. Um, But uh, when they come to that scene with uh, him chasing, people go, their minds are blown. Yeah. When was this movie from? Going, it's it's back in the (laughs) sixties. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. I think a lot of people just don't realize, and that's what I mean when I'm I watch movies for different things and. There, there are so many things that subconsciously I'm lifting. Um, and it could be, 
I mean, I can I can reference, you know, I'm just talking about Sonny Chiba's Street Fighter again. It, it, yeah. It's a great series, but there's this thing that he does when he starts to fight where he, he he's wearing tight pants. It's almost like he was the original hipster. He's wearing tight pants that he pulls up tight around his crotch and he gets down real low and he has like this sort of bowing leg thing, this bowing sort of crotch thing that I've seen yeah. in, in action panels of comics because you can draw those lines because you don't have to really be concerned about anatomy when you're doing that kind of stuff. And I fucking love that. And that that <laughs> that sticks out violently towards to to me and then if you when we were talking prior you made a good point where with a lot of these like low budget fly by the seat of your pants we can't do multiple takes i got to use what i shot um indies or 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 grindhouse movies they have like these really natural accidents that happen and yeah. one, one that sticks out to me, and I use this as a reference consistently whenever I want to do car stuff, is there's a moment in Road Warrior, and I think it's in the beginning of Road Warrior, where Max is running from the guy on the bike, and uh, he he hits that truck. He gets to the point, I think this is the sequence, he finds the truck that's been tipped over and there's gas, and he hits the brakes on his interceptor. And there's a low angle on the street level where the back tire of that car just goes, and it juts. And that, to me, adds such an energy to that sequence that is missing from every fucking Fast and Furious movie, that is missing from all of those things. It's just the uh, inconsistency of that tire on that street, the unpredictableness of that energy, like trying to stop that energy from uh, moving in one direction and it all coming down on that tire. And I thought in um, his recent one in uh, Fury Road, once again with the tires, he they did something really specific with the interceptor in the first shot that it took me a while to fucking wrap my head around because I fetishized that car. That car is so amazing to me. And there in the in the opening when he like eats the lizard and he jumps in the car and they show the insert of that tire turning i looked at it and i go what the fuck is on that tire is there like mud on the tire like what is what is all that black shit on it and then upon further investigation and i think one of the designers said it the tire has been so old and it's so frayed so the rubber's all frayed on it and so it's all of like whether it's horsehair, whatever the fuck is inside that tire, it's all frayed out on the side, and it gives it that texture. And then when oh. it when it moves, it gives it this kinetic energy, and that's the genius of George Miller, like like right there with the tires and those two movies, I think. So I don't know, it's weird. I'm getting real nerdy. <laughs> no, I uh, I um I have a serious love for a lot of uh, his work. But of course, specifically the Mad Max stuff. Yeah. It's, it's it's part of, I think, to the point of um, you're making all Fast and the Furious. Um, going back to once again, name dropping the same people over and over. <laughs> Sergio Leone would he would make his version of Akira Kurosawa, right? Mm-hmm. He he sort of embody what those film what made those films great and made them his own. Mm-hmm. Um, the Fast and the Furious just uh, derive from other car movies. You know, it, they don't make it their own. I think in the same way, Miller was really inspired by Westerns. 
only mm-hmm. replacing the horses with cars. And when when you're looking at uh, a lot of the stuff that goes on in in the Mad Max movies, it's it's going back to you know old cowboy films. Uh, there's certainly a lot of the searchers in there. Yes, yes, uh, yes. And and it's it you know it, it has the same setting, but it's not necessarily the same actions that are being um, um, made it's it's not the same um, vehicles it <laughs> he makes it their, his own he's clearly inspired by it but it doesn't copy he he uh, embodies it and makes it something else and and when you do that you in, invent new things to it and I think that's what the beauty of of this sort of um, let's call it movie sampling. <laughs> that a lot of great filmmakers do and the ones that are falling short they they just dig where they stand you know they they um, impersonate or mimic things that they like in the same genre it's it's like when making art or specifically concept art for games and and whatnot Mm -hmm. um i sometimes you know to students and uh give lectures um, and do these talks. And one of the points that I always want to bring up is one, I had an intern who is now a, a absolutely brilliant oil painter. So she didn't stay in video games, (laughs) (laughs) but she she was uh, talking about how she wants to, you know, make um, um, honor skills at at fantasy art, you Mm. know, for, because he enjoyed fantasy games and, and all these things. And she goes, what fantasy artists should I look at? And I go, well, you should probably start looking at uh, makers of Rococo furniture and, I don't know, drag racing. Don't <laughs> look at anything <laughs> but fantasy uh, artists because they're only going to sort of color you that much that you're just going to ever so slightly modulate the thing that they've already done. Look at something else. I mean, that's... I think that's where you get a, a more interesting frame of reference. If you want to, if you're passionate about fantasy, stay away from fantasy <laughs> imagery. Yeah. Look at something else, and that's uh, something I think is done really well by a lot of filmmakers, specifically Miller. It's, uh, I mean, they're of course connected, certainly in, in in a few ways, his movies and and westerns, but they're not straight off. He's he has um different sensibilities and he brings something else to it not in the least the attention to detail which yeah uh, from reading about and then um, watching interviews with production design on fury road it's like 20 was it 24 years of attention to detail they oh started God, making dude. the the scripting and concept design back in the 90s and every single one of the um i forget what they're called the boys uh with the uh, the um, war boys the war boys they all have a backstory and uh, (laughs) all their outfits and everything they're wearing the actor knows the character backstory so they can live sort of really embody it but you as a viewer don't know that yeah no one it's it's between the um costume designer uh miller and the actor which is incredible (laughs) dude it's insane i mean talk about a movie a movie without a script i mean that that movie was built on storyboards i mean he's he sat down with a comic book artist and they fucking they banged out storyboards this is brendan brendan mccarthy 
yeah. made a lot of the weirdo uh, designs. They were <laughs> I've seen some of the earliest uh, concept work they made for the film. It's an entirely different beast, but also very much the same. You know the um, guitarist guy. The the one thing of the in the movie that most people just go, "Ah, it's yeah. not working for me." Is the guitarist, <laughs> but that's been around since whenever they started ninety six or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and honestly, I love the, the guitarist. <laughs> yes. It, it, it should be weird. It should be fucking strange, man. There should be stuff yeah. that rubs you the wrong way. It's the point of it's it. A, and the, I mean, they're they're more or less a Roman um, Roman galley. Yes, yeah. you know the warships. Yes, uh, the guy uh, keeping the 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 beat so everyone rows in the, at the same pace. It, that's what he's doing. He's the the pole bearer and the 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 front runner and uh, the <laughs> what do you call the, the the figurehead kind of in in war. <laughs> it makes total sense to me. Yeah, man, I love it, dude. I. Look, I, I got to wrap this up because we've been going for a while. But this has been a, such a great conversation, man. Like, uh, I, 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 you and I have a lot of the same sensibilities, and I'm, it's nice. It's nice. I, I mean, dude, I could tell when I read your book. <laughs> when I read the book, I'm like, oh, I'm going to get along with this guy. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, man, this has been wonderful. This has been absolutely wonderful. And I'm very happy to have been able to chat with you and to get to know you. And uh, uh, Likewise. Yeah, Likewise. man. And anybody listening to the show, if you can find that Kali book hardcover, you should find it. Uh, because it's pretty epic. I mean, it will inspire you. You want to talk about lifting. You'll be lifting from that book. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of really great stuff in there, man. Um, thank you so much for being on the show, Robert. Thanks for having me. It was, uh, it was a pleasure. episode in the can i fucking love robert he's cool man i love it when i meet someone that you know basically we're, we're both hanging out in the same spots you know what i mean creatively we're in the same places i'm sure we would you know catch each other in the same movie screenings if we lived in the same area you know i'd see him in the comic book store or in the vinyl shop you know when we go vinyl shopping right now, there's a bunch of other 40-year-olds that are in there with metal t-shirts flipping through, like, Synthwave. <laughs> He'd probably be in the same bins I was in. Um, I love his work. I cannot say enough great things about his stuff. Go check out his website. Um, I will have the links in the description of the episode. Or if you are at inlovewiththeprocess.com, you've seen the work. I just get lost in it. I just get lost in it. Um, there's a reason why he's hired to do movie posters. Fuck. I'm just flipping through stuff right now. He's got a poster for The Birds 2, Land's End. Who the shit? Who cares about The Birds 2? And he's drawn such amazing, amazing fucking posters. I actually want to watch this movie now. That's what's great. We talked offline and he was saying that he loves to do really amazing posters for like really shitty movies. And I love that. I really do. Oh, I want to watch that movie. Let's see what else. Tiger Claws. <laughs> that looks cool. It's a movie called Assholes. Fantastic cover. 
fantastic covers. Yeah. He did something for the mummy. Yeah. Definitely check out his stuff. Uh, this is one of my favorite episodes. Because, uh, of, of course, I'm a comic book nerd. And, of course, I'm a 1970s grindhouse nerd. How many of you have watched movies from that time period? Because I know there's a lot of young listeners out there. And they're constantly asking, what movies should we watch? What movies should we see? The movies that we referenced, in case you missed them in the show, we referenced um, Street Fighter, Sonny Chiba. There's a series of those movies. Um, uh, Tarantino is a huge fan of them. If you watch True Romance... Uh, when uh, Christian Slater and Arquette are in the theater together, they're watching uh, Street Fighter with Sonny Chiba. I would argue that the final fight scenes that happen on the ship uh, were seen by Spielberg when he does the fight scene on the ship. I think it was The Last Crusade. Was that one? the Indiana Jones where he's fighting the guy on the ship with the rain and the, the waves fly, coming over the the edge of the boat in the storm. I would argue that he saw Street Fighter because that's in there. Uh, we referenced that. Uh, the other movie is called uh, They Call Her One Eye or Thriller. It's a different title for it. Uh, it's an exploitation film from the 70s. It's brutal. It's intense. It's weird. It's fun. Uh, a lot of the practical effects that I did in 12KM were definitely inspired by some of the grisly practical effects that were in that movie highly suggest that film i also referenced the other movies from that time period that gave me very sort of sickening visceral reactions to uh domestic violence and to rape and so all that other stuff from the 70s very exploitive um let um i keep going to say let the right one in no that's not it it's last house on the left um and then uh i spit on your grave fuck that movie's brutal they did some remakes of that movie not as good uh, the original is brutal. Uh, definitely watch those. Um, and then um, we talked about Once Upon a Time in the West, the old Sergio Leone movies. Definitely check those out. If you haven't seen those, they're epic. Um, and uh, Robert says it best, where it was the Italian Western director essentially doing his best version of Kurosawa. So if you go back and watch any uh, Kurosawa movies, uh, highly suggest you get your hands on a Criterion channel subscription because a lot of this stuff you can find on Criterion. If you can't find it on Criterion, Arrow, Arrow DVD. I think Arrow might even have a channel uh, for sure. I think they do. And you can find a lot of the stuff on there as well. Um, but uh, dig deep. And, you know, when you sit down to watch a 70s grindhouse or like an ultra exploitation film, just know that you're not getting the normal sort of cheeseburger shit that you're used to. Know that some of the stuff may feel cheesy. Some of the dialogue may feel outdated. Some of the stuff that people are talking about may be outdated. That's not why you're watching it. You're watching it for mood. You're watching it for tone. You're watching it for technique. You're watching it to get lost in that stuff. Uh, if you guys want more from me, let me know. Do you guys want me to do a whole episode on exploitation films? We can. I'll try to find uh, an expert on that. Bring someone on. Just let me know. S -s write me a message on uh, either in love with the process pod on Instagram, because you'll probably get through to me there. Or you can try to reach me at, at, uh, at Mike Petchy on Instagram and uh, make your way through the fucking 12 cam DM nightmare that I'm dealing with. All right. That's it, man. 
And that's the end of the show. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Hope you guys enjoy and strap yourselves in for a brand new epic season. I'm in love with the process. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and do whatever you want. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Anything is possible.